Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, 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 and welcome to the show. So, I had a bit of an internal discussion with myself about whether it was worth doing this. I think it would be slightly remiss, given we do a show every Sunday, not to talk about, obviously, the main event of the week, which is, of course, the death of Britain's longest reigning monarch, Queen Elizabeth II. Is it worth the increasing death threats to to talk about this? Um, Obviously, we are going to talk about it. And the reason we're going to talk about it is because a new unelected head of state has assumed office. Obviously, you and I and any other British citizen, or indeed subject, which is, of course, what we are, we've got no say over that of any description whatsoever. So I I just kind of feel if you're going to have, again, a head of state, the symbol of this country, and also actually not just of this country, but Australia or Canada or wherever, uh, without any discussion, that by itself, obviously, is, is not entirely democratic. Now, I think lots of people would say, well, look, this isn't the right time. Lots of people are in mourning. Millions of people are obviously very sad about the death of Queen Elizabeth II. And I have nothing but respect, of course, for their grief and for their for their mourning. But there are millions of people in this country who do believe in an elected head of state. And those who say it's not the time, well, it never seems to be the right time to discuss the future of the monarchy. And of course, for those of us who are Republicans and who believe in an elected head of state, it's nothing personal. I have nothing, obviously against the Queen. I didn't know the Queen personally, but lots of people had huge amounts of affection, of course, and respect for her. Now, I I do think it's not that long, obviously, after she died. The coverage is, I think, it's been pretty predictable. I think most of us would have guessed which direction it would have headed in, which is very much enforced national grief. Um, Anyone seemed to be deviating from that national grief um, is it's been quite heavily policed, I would say. Um, the cover- some of the coverage, and I'm going to talk about this with my, the brilliant Michael Walker from Navarra. Some of the coverage is, I'd say, verging on North Korea. Um, I mean, hyperbolic. I know, obviously, it's not exactly the same as as a raging totalitarian dictatorship, but it's 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 hard to satirize some of of the coverage. Now, in terms of just before I bring in Michael, we'll talk about this actually with Michael, obviously. Um, yeah, I mean, just, just some egregious examples, I think. I mean, Hackney Carnival got cancelled. They said, regretfully, we have made the decision to cancel Hackney Carnival on Sunday to observe the period of national mourning. We'll be looking at whether it's feasible to hold Carnival later this year if we can showcase the artist's work in another way. And to begin with, that left everyone in limbo because lots of, for example, very small private businesses, traders and so on, um, they rely on you know, that, that's their income, um, which which they were going to get from a council in exchange for their for their services. Handy Council has since clarified that they will they will, I think, um make sure they're compensated. But I mean, come on, what what's what what's the logic in cancelling the carnival? If people want to grieve privately, they can do so and they don't they don't if they don't want to go to a carnival, don't turn up to a carnival. You know, if we're gonna talk about Hackney, I mean the polling about the monarchy is quite clear, which is 
enthusiasm for the monarchy is is least amongst younger people and people of colour, disproportionately the sort of people who make up Hackney, if I'm honest with you. Um, just another example, which I think is even more egregious, Hammersmith and Fulham Council, it's a Labour Council, a Labour Council. Please be aware that following the passing of Her Majesty the Queen today's scheduled car-free day celebration, Hammersmith has been postponed. As a result, King Street will remain open to motorists. Is that what she wanted? Is that what she would have wanted? Just to have cars and motor, just just more cars on the streets, more pollution, <laughs> less family friendly. Bor- what I mean, what I don't understand what is going on now. Lots of people obviously been showing their grief in in various ways. Um, uh, the metro, the Met Office decided to suspend weather. <laughs> the- they decided, they said they're saddened by the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth. Obviously, thoughts um, are with her family and those affected. But they said they would, they, they're only doing daily forecasts. So you can't plan ahead for the weather in advance because it would be disrespectful to the Queen. Um, people privately be talking, of course. The, this is quite uh, the UK Corgi Club. This is punching down a bit on my part, but it's anonymous. So it doesn't matter. Anyone else is Corgi acting differently now that Her Majesty has passed, as has been curled up on our laps ever since the news broke, which is unusual, almost as though they know. God bless the Queen. They don't know, just so we're clear, absolutely clear about that. Um, the coverage, though, I mean, we're going to talk about the coverage shortly with, with Michael, because some of it has actually been disturbing. There's one very disturbing example, which we, we will talk about. Uh, if you're watching live as ever, press uh, on the YouTube link. I know lots of you watching on Facebook as ever, but... Nice if you click on YouTube and press like and subscribe. Um, you can use Super Chat to put questions to our guests. Later on, we'll be really talking to the brilliant Professor Paul Rogers about what's happening in Ukraine. It looks as though the tide maybe has turned in favour of Ukraine. A pretty stunning counter-offensive seems to have taken place. So we'll talk to Paul um, um, later on about exactly what's happening on the ground. Paul, we've spoken to numerous times about the conflict in Ukraine and he knows his stuff more than almost anyone so it's great to have him um and uh do you know what let's just let's just bring in Michael now hey Michael how you doing uh very well not as good as I would have been if Hackney Carnival wasn't cancelled because it was just around the corner from me and I was planning I'd arranged to go there I mean it's it's obviously not the saddest thing that's happened this weekend but I did find it somewhat irritating but you've torn me away from the BBC's um, incredibly turgid coverage. I, I feel like I would be embarrassed if I was a BBC journalist right now. So, what did you mm. say? You've been watching a lot of it. I haven't. I'm going to be honest with you. I've not been watching much. I what I dipped my toe in and I I struggled after a few minutes. Just give us a give us an overview. You've become a kind of royal <laughs> coverage watcher. I think of the left. So, what's going on on the BBC? Well, I've, beca- I've become a bit of a royal coverage truther. Actually, I think I'm going to. Um... I'm planning to go to Buckingham Palace after this because I keep viewing the the BBC hosts say, and we are standing here in front of thousands and thousands of people, huge crowds. And then you look behind them and there's like 20 20 people. And and obviously, you know, like, I I don't quite know what the setup is. That's why I'm going to go down today. I'm sure lots of people are laying flowers, but it just doesn't, I feel like it is being somewhat over well, I mean obviously it's being massively overdone but I think even even this issue of crowds is being a little bit overdone feels a bit Donald Trump at the inauguration like the, the crowds are huge they were huge and then you look at the image and they're not that big it's like no biggest crowds we've ever seen it I got in trouble we're not in trouble I mean you can post any literally if you don't post something kind of just expressing your your huge distress and mourning right now you're going to get in trouble but yeah I just made the point I mean I know there's, there's there are differences here but there was when Princess Diana died and anyone who lived through that 
I'm a geriatric millennial. I think you may be a bit too young to remember that at the time. I remember, remember it very I, vaguely. Yeah, I was 13, so I remember quite. It's seared, it's seared onto the memories of anyone who lived through that, who's kind of conscious. And it was unbelievable. It was genuine national trauma, and there were massive mobs of people. Now, obviously, people would say, well, she's 36 years old, and she died very suddenly and very tragically in an accident in Paris. I get that. But the Queen has been the Queen for seven decades, longest reigning Queen. And when she became Queen, three million people lined the streets. And in the 70s, which would have been her 25th, when she was tw 25, what's the 25 one again? What's the 25th anniversary called? Silver? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Silver, huge crowds. If you read about the accounts at the time, really, really huge crowds. I, I, I'm sorry, this isn't, you know, I know people don't like talking about this, but I, there isn't the same level of enthusiasm in terms of for the monarchy as if you're going to compare the crowds to previous royal events, if I'm honest. Mm. I mean, we might see, to be fair um, to monarchism, I mean, it, it will presumably be when she's lying in state that one would expect to see sort of the most dramatic crowds. So when she's lying in the Palace of, of Westminster and you can file past and they're expecting a very long queue. But I think the problem, you know, in politics, you talk about expectation management. And I think sort of this obviously has been very choreographed. There's no denying that down to the last detail. And sort of if you read articles beforehand, they're saying what they're preparing for is for the whole of London to basically be full, you know, public transport to be unusable, there to be almost food shortages because everyone is outpouring into the city to demonstrate their their grief. And I, I, I assume sort of the language they've been using on the news, they probably were expecting bigger crowds than were there. Well, just oh, as an example. Interesting. Sorry, go on. No, no, it was just one BBC commentator said, they explained it because it's winding down from Scotland, that Scottish people don't emote as enthusiastically as people down south. <laughs> <laughs> That must be it. That must be it. That must be it. Famously said. I don't want to be essentialist about Scottish people one way or the other, but I don't think they're stereotypically seen as more subdued than English people. But anyway. The BBC is very much about essentialism today. I tuned in. Uh, I don't know who it was because the image was of the Queen's coffin driving down Scottish roads. But a commentator said, and you could tell her influence on the world stage because even Vladimir Putin, leader of that atheistic Republican state anti-monarchist had to express his uh respect for the queen so you can tell uh you know how how much she meant to even you know people who who, who aren't monarchists and then the bbc host doesn't push back at all that russia is this weird atheistic republic right. republic and then, uh, they think well, it's, well, like the it's like yeah the orthodox church is a big part of like his power but, and his myth unbelievably powerful the orthodox church is just his power has just been completely restored it's like this crazy orthodox church kind of revanchist regime but because the bbc doesn't do journalism anymore the host said in response oh yes he did he did release a statement rather quickly <laughs> didn't he <laughs> Speaking of, BBC, speaking of BBC coverage, let's, let's just, this is much remarked on online. I like Clive Myrie, by the way, generally speaking, but this was a bit egregious. Let's just see what he said. At Buckingham Palace, uh, Damien, um, the news a little bit earlier on today that the doctors in Scotland were concerned about the Queen's health coming um, as Liz Truss was making a, a rather important statement concerning um, the future of energy bills. Um, that, of course, insignificant now, given the gravity of the situation we seem to be experiencing with Her Majesty. Well, certainly overshadowed, Clive, yes, by that announcement from the palace. Oh. 
Insignificant. I like the way actually, to be fair, the, the journalist, Damien Grammaticus, afterwards was like, well, it's overshadowed, maybe. Um, yeah, the, the fact that we're going through the biggest social crisis in peacetime since the Great Depression is irrelevant now. Absolutely, is the Queen's dead. That's all irrelevant. Astonishing. Well, I mean, he said, you know, to be fair to him, he's come out and said, look, it was just a mistaken choice of words. I mean, I don't do live TV, but I do live YouTube. You know, sometimes these things happen. But one, I'm a, I'm a little bit less sympathetic than Clive Murray than I used to be. I thought in the in the in the pandemic, he did lots of very moving reports at the beginning of the Ukraine war. I remember him tweeting, don't you dare say this is anything like Iraq. I'm sort of like, why? Why not? You know, it's a war of a, aggression. And what he said there, you know, potentially it was uncomfortable wording but it's also what the bbc has demonstrated for the past four days right i can see why on the day the queen died yes that is bigger news than the energy crisis because the energy crisis is something we've been talking about for mm. for quite a while and the queen dying was a sudden event that was the big news that day obviously if if on thursday both energy prices increased by five times and the queen died then you'd have a bit of a problem you know if you're if you're managing the news but considering that was the, the energy crisis was an ongoing story the queen's death was new fine but ever since i still don't think they've talked about a different story on the bbc you know the, as you're going to talk about later on the show the ukrainians have made huge advances against the russians could be a turning point in that war obviously the energy crisis is still going on how about we just talk about the queen's death for 20 minutes every hour instead mm -hmm. of for an hour every hour which is it that is a conscious judgment made by the bbc that's not someone's slip of the tongue they are explicitly telling us all nothing else matters for the next 10 days other than the fact that uh, a 96 year old lady died in terms of let's just someone's just made this from tokyo first time watching ih first time watching alive do you think charles snapping at the at the help during the signing ceremony of damages image let's just see what they're talking about Let's have the other one here. Here we go. <laughs> what must he be like when the cameras aren't rolling? What do you That's think? what I thought watching that. What do you think about that? I mean, people would say, look, his mum's just died. He's just become the king. Stressful. I don't, it's just, what do you think? I just, what do you think about it? What do you think? What did we just see there? Well, I've never reacted to stress by, I mean, they always say you can tell what a person is like by how they, treat service workers, right? And that, you know, I don't, I don't know what that person's job is. Are they a servant or is it, I, I don't understand these things. I don't know what that role is. Um, I don't, I've never had, I've never had to ask someone to move a pen from one part of a table to another part of the table. But it, I think what that clip showed was a bit of the mask slipping because I have to say, I found like the, the politicians' responses and the BBC's responses incredibly crude. Like I find them just obviously embarrassing. I think the royal response to the Queen passing away had been quite impressive up to that point. I thought, well, King Charles, he is now. His speech on on Friday, I mean, it had some really gross bits. You know, I'm proud of all the different talents of all the people, all my subjects, and be like, that's kind of gross and presumptuous and colonial and I hate it. But, you know, he was talking about missing his mum. I did sort of believe it. It, it you know, it was, it, it felt honest to some degree. But it was obviously very, very choreographed. And I, I, I felt like they would be doing that very well. Obviously, they keep trying to send him out to shake people's hands. People seem to appreciate that's a good look for the royals. But then this was a moment where I think the mask slipped. And obviously, you know, the media aren't going to pick up on it because they're in full North Korea mode. But 
lots of people have seen that on social media, I think millions and millions and millions of views. So people who probably were of mind um, to, I suppose, forget what they actually know about the royal family, because there's no, there's no surprise that people who were told that you have a God-given right to rule a country are a little bit um, obnoxious. <laughs> so, so it's not like, oh God, imagine being obnoxious when you've been told your whole <laughs> life that you have a God-given God right to rule over, well, they keep, what do they keep saying on the telly? 2.5 billion people are part of the country. Yeah, I think excessive privilege rots away your humanity, essentially. This is what the class system does to people. I just want to just to raise this, but this is coming up a lot. So I just want to pull it on now quickly because we talked about media coverage and you've talked about egregious media coverage. There has been no worse example than this. Uh, Chris Caber, who was shot dead by the police. This has obviously just happened a few days ago. Let's just have a look at this. This was someone posted this. So it's got some commentary as well from the person watching it. This was posted uh, by someone on Twitter and this was on Sky News. Bruv, this is the Chris Cabba um, march, bruv. <laughs> yeah, look at him. They're all black, mate. Sure about that. Sure about that. <laughs> Marin. Oh my god. Later, Sky News did actually. Uh, this I think is kind of aggravating as well. They issued not an apology, which is what you kind of think they should have done, but a clarification. They just clap. Now, clarifications are what you do. Yeah, it's just kind of, kind of adding a bit more detail, or maybe something was a bit misleading without kind of context. But that that was just false. That wasn't anything to do with the Queen. It wasn't anything to do with the death. It was to do with the death of a unarmed black man who was shot dead by the police. And the Sky News just provided wanton misinformation, which they could have they could have checked, I think, before they reported it. If we're going to be honest, mm. I mean, there's a couple. I, I think the, the the woman who was actually reading it out did post an apology on Twitter. But you're right that it it wasn't even a correction they offered on air. As you say, it was a clarification, like. You should do a correction and an apology. They just said, just to clarify something we said earlier, as you said, I mean, you've, you've expressed that that very well. So there's a couple of things to say about this. Obviously, as I say, it, it's it's reasonable that the Queen dying is still on rolling news coverage, but give that 10 minutes an hour. Chris Caber, the death of someone at the hands of the police who was unarmed, shot dead, that should also get a significant period of time on the news. The news radio presumably wasn't aware that demonstration was happening because they haven't talked about that because they're only allowed to talk about one thing over the, the next 40 hours. And it's the kind of issue that gets ignored by the mainstream media anyway. Uh, the other thing to say is... No, sorry, go on. Oh, no, go, go on. Sorry, go on. Well, I was going to say, the other thing is that it's, this is what all the coverage has been. You see people doing something and then you project onto the wit that they're doing it for the Queen. People solemnly and somberly waiting at the bus stop, looking at their phones, looking at the floor, um, not really engaging in much conversation. You can see um, this has really gone to people's heart, but still carrying on lives as usual very british very british <laughs> you could just point to anyone doing anything and saying this is to some degree them mourning the death of the queen 
in terms of, let's just, because again, as I've said at the start, a lot of people are saying, look, this ain't the time. Someone's died, who a lot of people have a huge amount of affection for. There's no question about that whatsoever, not just here, but across the world. Um, talking about whether or not we should have an elected head of state or not, they will say it's a legitimate political argument. But in a time of grief and national mourning, it's it's inappropriate and wrong to have this discussion now. What do you think about it? Well, I think if it is inappropriate to discuss what happens after the Queen dies in terms of constitutional settlements, then you shouldn't invest Prince Charles as King Charles in the same period of time. I mean, if, if there had been a period of mourning where we just don't think about the future for a while and all, all, all you talk about is the Queen, fine, fair enough. Then we can wait for the whole discussing whether or not we should have a King Charles. But within 24 hours... He was King Charles and the whole media had gone into full propaganda mode of you have to accept this guy as your king, as your unelected king who through bloodline is now superior to you. So it, I feel like the the situation demands that discussion now because they have made him king now. Mm-hmm. And yeah, they'll say oh, it's a formality. He has to become the king as soon as she's died. Yeah, but they've, they've done all the ceremony that goes with it as well. And also that's not accidental, right? So, I mean, it's very helpful for the legitimacy of, of now King Charles, that the moment at which he assumes um, that power, when it seems least natural, because it does seem least natural that he is now the king when it's just happened, um, is also the time when we are we have most sympathy for him because his mother has just passed away. And obviously, you know, wh- whoever someone is, you have sympathy for them rightly um, when their mother passes away. But it's not it's not accidental that we are that the moment of most peril, let's say, for the legitimacy of, of of a King Charles is the moment when we are all understandably supposed to have sympathy for him. So I think that's why it, they started it, essentially. If you don't want people to talk about republicanism after someone's died, don't make a new king after someone's died. Get, leave a little time in between. It's interesting, too. This is what I think is interesting, because we're talking, obviously, about the crowds, and we'll see what happens. Obviously, as you say, the, the funeral takes place on Monday, uh, a week on Monday. Uh, which is the 19th, 19th of September. Uh, so obviously there'll be far greater crowds than that, no question. But just in terms of where the public are at, at with the monarchy, let's just see this uh, poll, which is from uh, last year. So this is Yugo, this is Yugo tracking last year. So people like us are in a minority, a relatively small minority, it has to be said. 24% of the British population should think we should have an elected head of state. Should bear in mind, that is still millions of people, very, very clearly. 61% said should continue to have a monarchy. Now, for amongst those over 65 years old, 81% really overwhelming support the, the continuation of the monarchy. For those aged 50 to 64, it's 70%. It dips very substantially then, 25 to 49 year olds, that's our demographic, 53% keep the monarchy, 27% get rid. 18 to 24 year olds, there's a plurality, which is a word I can never pronounce. Uh, 24% say get rid of the monarchy, 31% say keep. Other polling has shown that amongst people of colour, support for the monarchy is much, much lower than amongst white people as well. What do you think is happening there generationally? Because you can see that. I mean, you know, and also people go, well, maybe, you know, maybe they'll grow into their monarchies and people become more right wing with age, but. Lot, there's a lot of myths there because, I, I, as I always keep pointing out, you know, 1983, the, the young voted for Margaret Thatcher. The massive generational uh, divide when it comes to voting patterns is is, is relatively u- unique. It's certainly unique in terms of the how big it is. But I mean, that's it is very clearly, isn't it, the case that basically enthusiasm, support for the monarchy, 
has just waned generation by generation. And there's a bedrock of support amongst older people, but the rising generations are not actually that keen on the monarchy. And I would argue the treatment of Meghan Markle, which goes down very well amongst a certain section of the population, not least racists, but it does go down very well amongst a certain section of the population, is actually antagonising, I think, a lot of younger people and people of colour who would look to Meghan Markle as someone they would relate to far more than the rest of the monarchy. I mean, I think also just, you know, a general long-term trend like deference towards your, well, supposed superiors in this case, sort of class deference is is less than it once was, thank God. I mean, the other thing is, I mean, I suppose what that what those what that polling shows is that there is a vast majority of people in, in favor of the monarchy. Yes, it's it's undemocratic that Charles has become king, but at the same time, if there was a referendum whether or not he should become king, probably yes, would would win. So it's it, it, it's not completely imposed. But I do think there is, yeah, a vulnerability that is evident in that polling because a lot of the legitimacy of the Queen comes with this idea that she has been there a long time. What people keep saying on the radio, you know, she was there during the Second World War. And obviously we have reverence for people who were around during the Second World War, quite understandably. Um, Charles isn't going to have any of that. I think he's less likeable as a person. The more he keeps doing these sort of, you know, shooing away his servants, I think that that number could could rise quite dramatically um so yeah i mean i think now for me republicanism isn't really a priority like i think it would be cool to have i mm. think it's one to sort of in a way keep on the back burner but whilst resisting what i i think is just sort of this gross infantilizing coverage and political approach to it that we're seeing at the moment i would wonder if this pushes more people in the opposite direction it might just be that i watch too much of the bbc and i have done over the past few days but, and I wanted to go to Hackney Carnival. But my approach when the Queen first passed away was like, look, I'm not, I'm not mourning her because I don't have any particular emotional attachment to the Queen. But, you know, people I like and respect to, um, you know, my late grandmother loved the Queen. Uh, she went to one of her garden parties because she had the golden wedding anniversary the oh. same day or the same month, I don't know, as the Queen. Loads of old couples went to the palace. She loved it. I think she got... Um, who was the animal hospital guy? Rolf Harris's autograph yes. on a yeah. bit of tissue. I'm not sure if Jimmy Savo was there. I don't know if it's the full set. Um, but she had a great time there. She would have been very sad now. I don't want to be like saying you're an idiot if you're mourning the Queen. Lots of reasonable people will be doing that. But I have become more and more irritable and less open-minded as the coverage has got more and more ridiculous. And I'm feeling much more Republican now than I did on Thursday. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, I mean, if you look at the death of the Duke of Edinburgh, Again, the viewing figures were were pretty bad. I mean, people mm. did clearly, if, if they were voting with their remote controls or however they watched, however you consume your television, um, they weren't enthusiastically watching or engaging with the coverage. I mean, you really actually have to be quite an ardent Republican, I think, to just sit through hours of, I mean, what can be said? I mean, there's very little you can actually say as well. But that's the thing, isn't it? It becomes... You know, I mean, obviously now we don't even debate about impartiality with the BBC. It's not even like they don't even pretend. I mean, when it comes to the monarchy, I mean, we even even suggesting they'd be impartial to the BBC. I think a lot of people, when it comes to the monarchy, a lot of people just would think, well, obviously they're not going to be impartial about it. They wouldn't even consider that mm -hmm. as a thing. But the fact we just take that for granted that the BBC will not just obviously churn out coverage, which is about people being very sad about the Queen, about expressing their grief, which would be completely legitimate regardless of their editorial stance. There is just a very clear editorial stance, which is the monarchy is great. It's brilliant. It's integral to being British. 
Uh, it's very much part of our identity. Uh, the, the whole country is united in mourning, and we're even going to pretend that protest or get got it wrong about protests about a black man being shot dead by the police is something to do with it because we are so determined to browbeat you with the idea that every single person in this country is united because this is this is us being British. I mean, it's bizarre. I mean, there's just no, you know, that's there's no debate about impartiality when it comes to it. But the fact there isn't a debate about it is itself interesting, I think. Mm. Yeah, it's, I, I think it's embarrassing. Like, I, I do think there is something which is it's, it's like degrading of journalism and public discourse that this is happening and everyone's accepting. You know, you, you get you get one posh guest and a host and they just say like, so how great was the Queen? Do tell us, do tell us how great the Queen was. And then the guest says, oh, the Queen was really great. And then the host says, oh, she was, wasn't she? And they go, oh, yes, she was. It's like, what the hell am I watching here? It doesn't... Bizarre. I mean, in terms of the class politics of grief, if you like, the, the Queen actually, I think this is a really actually great quote, which she said, which is, uh, grief is the price we pay, sorry, grief is the price we pay for love. I think it's actually quite a nice, you know, it's one of those quotes where you it's actually, quite nice. you quite, you think about it, it's like, actually, that's quite a good way of summing that up. Because I've heard, of, you know, grief described as love that has nowhere to go, which is also quite a nice way of putting it. But anyway, it's, just, it's a nice thing. But the problem is with this um, bit of mourning is, the price many people are paying for grief is their income because huge numbers of cancellations are taking place because for some reason, um, th th every kind of council organization is looking at their schedule and going, well, we'll just cancel whatever's there just because we can say we've canceled something. Um, now, unfortunately, lot, you know, if we look at, for example, the Premiership, the Premier League, so uh, that's been suspended following the death of Queen Elizabeth II. Curiously, not rugby or cricket. Now, football has become more middle class over the last generation or so, but it's still more associated with working class culture in England than rugby. That's not true in Wales. Wales is more working class culturally there. But, you know, it, 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 it's striking that that's happened. But nonetheless, I've been inundated with people whose income was dependent on those football matches taking place in various uh, forms. Lots of people, we are in a social crisis, which is still relevant because it hasn't gone away. People's living costs haven't been suspended, uh, but their incomes often are. And these are often, again, low-paid, precarious people, people on zero-hour contracts. I mean, that, I think, is quite striking, isn't it, that you've got, obviously, the death of the Queen, who, obviously, lots of people have affection for a very privileged woman, and then you have lots of people who are living in insecurity and low pay, and they're actually, they're being forced to, to take a big financial hit, and they've got families to feed and bills to pay. Absolutely. And it's not just financial as well. I mean, they cancelled kids' football this Sunday. Oh, like, oh. Sunday Football League is cancelled. It's like, that's so bizarre. Like, we've just put kids through two years of lockdowns and schools being closed. They've been through enough. Don't make them cancel their football just because a 96-year-old lady has passed away. Because there's, there's, there's no point to it. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. The cynic in me does think that... So there's, there's two arguments as to why it happens. Like, the Premier League got together and they felt like... People, we're, we're a big corporation. We need to, we can't take any risks here. We have to show utmost respect to the Queen. That means we're going to, we're going to cancel it. Um, the other is that they thought, well, what if there are some, you know, it would be cool. It, it could be a nice bit of mourning if everyone turned up and we did a minute silence and everyone wore an arm, black armband. But what if there were some fans who didn't play ball? What if Liverpool fans didn't play ball, for example? That would be very embarrassing. You could say the same thing about Hackney Carnival. Are, are no demographics who might not be more than 95% monarchists allowed to assemble 
over the next 10 days. Is that it? So the, the only things that are allowed to go ahead is where more than 95% of the audience are going to be monarchists, the cricket, um, very monarchist sport. So I, I don't know if that is what's going on. It might just be sort of, I don't know, the FA and Hackney Council going overboard. But I do I do think it could, it, it could be not a coincidence that it is those more working class activities, those more, uh, those activities that are more attended by people of ethnic minorities that are getting cancelled when the, yeah. the will, posher, whiter events are going ahead. It will stoke up resentment. I should just say, by the way, we clicked on a, we'd, I'll go through some of the super chats um, shortly, but we've clicked on one of them, which made quite a serious allegation about King Charles, which I don't know the truth about. So I should just say for, to avoid being sued by King Charles III, and that, and I don't have any evidence to support that particular accusation that was made about King Charles III, um, and also just for journalistic practice. Um, sorry, we automatically put up a lot of super chats. Didn't check that one. No offense to whoever put that up, but I don't, I don't, I can't, can't substantiate what was said. Um, is it just as well? Just while we're talking about just tiptoeing around legal issues, Meghan Markle, obviously, as I said, being vilified and and just attacked again. The whole kind of media usual attacks on her not not the case with with prince andrew though is it i mean i do think that's just striking that given i mean what does that tell us the fact that we they're still going for Meghan markle in a big way and we've got just like prince he's out and about he's out and about he's he's part of the whole i mean obviously he's grieving no he's grieving his mom i'm not going to begrudge anyone whoever they are for grieving their mom but what do you what, what's your response what's your thoughts on that yeah, I mean, the obvious, you know, is, is I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of racism involved. I'm sure there's a lot of sexism involved. I think it is also that there is a there is a certain level of proximity to the monarch, which because the media have all gone into full propaganda mode, they can't really discuss. So Meghan Markle, you can say, oh, yeah, what a horrible person, but she's not real, really part of the royal family. There is a, a reasonable amount of remove from her. And and um, well, now King Charles. I think if you sort of start saying that about his brother, his mum's favourite son, favourite son, he was he was bailed out very, by his mom. Exactly, it's very difficult to make out that Andrew is some sort of imposter on the royal scene because he is so central to it all. So I feel like they probably think the more we talk about Andrew, the more that will detract from the legitimacy of Charles and and the late Queen. Um, yeah, I mean, the, F the, the, the F same risk doesn't apply when it comes to Meghan. FSM the dog is the dog says how about if Andrew is next in line an interesting question but he isn't and I suspect if he was he wouldn't actually assume the role of the monarch um Attila Desix new prime minister imposed on the consent of 83,000 Tories with far more power than King Charles III yeah I mean I mean I know that's how parliamentary democracy works but it's not been a great sort of week I suppose for democrat you know kind of the flourishing of democracy where you get a new prime minister which obviously none of us had a say in apart from 83,000 Tories and then a new elected head of state uh, Tad Campwell, the eulogising in Parliament on the media reinforces my belief an empire state of mind exists in figures of authority, but is regressing into senility. It still may, it will still take maybe 30 years for another identity to emerge. I think, Mark, you're right, though. What we're seeing is the decline of deference amongst younger people. And, and also, I think maybe the kind of wartime hangover of the monarchy, I think, left its impressions, including people who were brought up after that, uh, which is less salient amongst younger people. Um, FSM is a dog also asked, what if Wales does, doesn't want a new English prince? tough <laughs> they have no say in matter that's how monarchy works um david bratter king charlie's shown himself to be a scandal magnet over seven decades on earth how do you, long do you think it'll take for his past to catch up on him oh that's because he keeps interfering i think that's a interesting really interesting point david actually Mark, isn't it? because one of the reasons the queen was undoubtedly a popular monarch 
um, is she was seen as kind of being above the fray. I always thought of her as a kind of slightly off-screen character. I don't know. If, I don't mean that in a disrespectful way at all. It's just she's she's not overly present. You know, she does the Christmas address. She does these public engagements where she doesn't really say very much. You don't actually hear the Queen talk very much. I, I don't have many. You know, my recollections of her talking, her doing the Christmas address. Um, King Charles is someone who clearly is very political and has lots of interests politically and has lobbied ministers when he's prince. That could be the undoing, couldn't it, of the monarchy? If, you, if you're seen to suddenly have a king taking, we have supposed to have a constitutional monarchy where they're kept out of these matters by convention rather than law. I mean, what do you think? Do you think that's the issue for, you know, that will potentially be what causes a crisis for the monarchy? I think it could be a big one, yeah. I mean, I know he said in public, look, I understand, I understand that uh, I, I won't have opinions once I am the monarch because I understand the constitutional settlements we have. But the, question, Michael? What, the, what the shoeing made me think, you know, the shoeing of the penholder, is that actually Prince Charles might not be as good at this as many of us had assumed. I had, you know, I'd thought because he's practised for so long, because it's been so well choreographed, the royal family, do they, they can put on a good event. The, the Jubilee, yeah. um, especially that Jubilee concert, was quite impressive. I was like, these, th there's clearly some competent people in that in that household. And up until the shoeing of, of, of the, the pen guy, I felt like they've got this down, to be honest. But actually, I feel like Prince Charles could have a few cock-ups up his sleeve. You know, if he were to be found out to be publicly lobbying for X, Y or Z, that would be a fuck up. And I do think that could undermine their legitimacy. But I, I think that's very much possible at this point and potentially sooner rather than later as well. Veiled Rose says, disgusting um, to see divine rights of monarchy still alive and kicking 21st century. No human being should be should hoard, be psychopathically hoarding wealth at the expense of impoverished and exploited masses. Um, Erin is clearly autistic in the charity sense. A lot of us has been told to suspend our campaigning work. Manless when energy companies haven't suspended people's bills. I've seen a lot of this actually, like event charity events, like people doing fun runs to raise money for causes. And again, whatever people's view on the monarchy, I don't really think the Queen was sort of dissuading people to do kind of charity work and sort of community work. It doesn't really seem actually that wasn't really her vibe her vibe either let's cancel operations owen i think if we really had any respect for the monarch we should cancel all non-urgent operations i don't <laughs> yeah. see why i don't see why anyone should be getting a new hip when yeah. they're not at risk of dying if they don't get a new one or just the entire national health service I've, I'm, i i think we should leave emergency care standing oh. I, I think oh, yeah. all all non-urgent care should cease um until the funeral yeah i think that's reasonable yeah, I'm Pinkett's Dharma should say that. I'll give them that for free. That's how you yeah, out, out don't, to oil the Tories on this one. Don't encourage them because you'll start a doctor auction where someone doesn't want to be the last person to like not grieve enough. It's like when Stalin did his speeches, you didn't want to be the last person to clap. So they had to put up a big billboard saying, stop clapping. Because obviously it's suspicious if you stop clapping. And this is like, you don't want to be the one who stops mourning too quick. <laughs> and there's a cartoon. I should have got brought it actually, which is like, so look how, look how hard I can cry. Yeah, I mean, it is um, it is obviously the, a, a hugely enforced national grief. I found it interesting as well, the free speech crowd, um, the ones who were like, we, we've got the right, you're not the right to be offended. They're the ones at the moment who keep bombarding me going, you're a disgrace, how dare you, how dare It's like you're not forced to watch or listen to discussions about the future of the monarchy. If you don't want, if you don't want to engage with them, then, 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 then don't really. 
I think finally, I think I don't know. I'm just there's a few other examples I think of just kind of funny examples of people feeling they have to mourn. What's this one? Um, oh yeah, Michael Crip. So I thought this was funny. Perhaps the Queen should posthumously be awarded an Oscar, Best Supporting Actor, perhaps, for her great Paddington Bear performance, or at least a BAFTA. So I responded saying, can everyone just, can everyone calm down a bit? Um, and uh, he got really angry at me and suggested that I was, he was just having a bit of fun. So maybe he was just joking. I don't know. It just seemed a bit of an odd thing to, <laughs> Just it was just a weird thing to tweet, if we're going to be honest with you. What's this one? Let's have a look at this one. Oh, yeah, this is sort of a gay fetish night. Following the death of Her Majesty, as we now enter a period of mourning, I feel it would be inappropriate to go ahead with alert on the 16th. Those who brought yeah, electronic tickets will be refunded. So they're, they're cancelling gay fetish nights. Well, think... people can always entertain themselves with a Queen Elizabeth themed dildo from Anne Summers, can't they, if they can't go <laughs> they, to that they, fetish night? They did literally put <laughs> out. I felt there's another one like Poppers, like a Poppers company. Sharing, <laughs> saying in and like in 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 respect to the queen, they won't tweet for the next few days. <laughs> I don't really think it's disrespectful for like a poppers company to um to sell. Anyway, um, so Michael, just to finish up, then you're gonna you're you're still gonna be watching. Right? You're gonna be avidly fixed the TV screens for the next. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm going to head to Buckingham Palace. I want to see, I want to see how big these, I'm measuring these crowds. Yeah, you're going to be, these, <laughs> literally going to do a Trump. Michael will be there. He will be like literally doing It's like one of those counters, you know, when you go into a club <laughs> and they need to work out the attendance, you've got those clickers. <laughs> <laughs> you know. uh, I actually am leaving the country. I was I was already leaving the country. I've got to literally finish my book, which everyone's bored of hearing. That's not going to talk about it. Um, but I'm going to leave the country for two weeks. Just finish my book, so I'll be missing. I'll be missing all of this, which is very sad. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will. I will. I will take part. Maybe. Maybe from a distance. Um, Michael, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for a pleasure for as always. Us. In a time of national morning, obviously, um, with your wisdom and the science. Sorry, I should look sadder. Thank you. Well, you're not you're wearing you're not wearing black either, which is egregious. I think that's something you only do that for the day, don't you? Oh, that's fine then. All right, just wear whatever. Wear, be as colourful as you like, or not colourful. Yes. It's up to you. Um, but it was uh, appreciative. And I should just say, just to wrap up, we're not be disrespectful here. We're talking about the monarchy. We're talking about his future. Is it? So it's a democracy with caveats. We live in. I think, as I've said, if they're going to impose another unelected head of state without any public discussion. 
we're going to try and encourage one, whether people like it or not. And millions of people do support Republic, and I think their voices have the right to be to be heard. So that's what we've done. Amen. All right. Lots of love, Michael. Take care of yourself. God save the king. God save the king. <laughs> yeah. Uh, great stuff there from Michael. Um, so um, just before we go to our next guest to talk about the very, very serious events taking place, of course, in Ukraine at the moment. Thanks for watching, everyone. Do click on the YouTube link if you're watching live uh, and press subscribe, press like, leave your comments. On Super Chat, we'll read you all the, thank everyone at the end, all the Super Chats that are coming in. And in fact, there's more that have come in, which I need to answer, which I'll do um, at the end of the show. And do support us on patreon.com forward slash owenjones84. That's how you keep the show on the road. We're not supported by billionaires, obviously. That's why we give a voice to all these views, which are otherwise not heard. We're making a documentary at Labour Party conference. I can't wait. Can't wait. Wow. It's going to be a, it's going to be a real ride emotionally. Um so what we're going to do is, I think we're going to go to Labour Party conference and um, we're going to scrutinise whether or not Keir Starmer has honestly kept to his leadership campaign uh, commitments. Uh, so that's, I think, will be an interesting discussion. What we're also going to do is go to Conservative Party conference. <laughs> um, lucky us, what I did in a past life to deserve this. Um, and what we're going to do there is obviously uh, we're going to scrutinise the catastrophic consequences of Tory policies during the worst social crisis since the war. I'm obviously very interested in um, the cost of living package which Liz Truss has announced, which now everyone's forgotten about, um, which she refuses to fund by imposing a windfall tax on the excess profits of the oil and gas companies, which are making £170 billion worth, um, and instead it'll be done by borrowing or whatever. So we can talk about that, about, you know, that's the right of Thatcher, by the way. Thatcher imposed a windfall tax on the banks in 1981 because Tory uh, hiking of interest rates gave them huge profits. So even more right-wing than Thatcher. So we'll talk about, talk about you know, we've got a lot to obviously interrogate and scrutinise the Tories on, but you make it possible on patreon.com forward slash owenjones84. Right, so let's bring in the brilliant Professor Paul Rogers, who is uh, speaking to us uh, from, oh, hello, we thought Michael there. Let me just remove Michael. There we go. Paul, hello, Paul. How are you doing? Hello there, my, uh, hello, hello there, Owen. Yes, I'm fine, thanks. Yeah, just listening into Michael. Fascinating half hour that. It was very fascinating. Well, Michael's always fascinating, yeah. obviously, on, on on a whole range of different issues. But yeah, it was. Uh, I was in the brace position. I have to say, talking about the monarchy is um, in the current times, asking for trouble, and it'll be interesting to see the emails we get later. Um, yeah. So let me just start. Let, let me just. There's a little video here. I want to see if it's just accurate. First of all, and, okay. and it's so. It's what we're talking about, obviously, is. Sorry, to give a bit more context, I'm just leaping into this. So the, the news of the last few days seems to suggest that Ukraine has launched a pretty stunning counteroffense against the Russian military, tricking them by um, seeming to do a, a, an offensive elsewhere, which diverted Russian military equipment, and that's allowed them to push forward. Let's just see this. So there we go. Um, for those listening on the podcast... What we're seeing here is Ukrainian military positions pushing forward quite dramatically. There does seem to be some suggestions that places that they've not actually launched an offensive against, the Russians have also vacated uh, simply because presumably they fear the Ukrainians are going to take, are going to sweep in. So I suppose my question is how serious is this? How much? Of how successful has this Russian uh, Ukrainian counteroffensive actually been? 
It's difficult to say because we're obviously getting the information primarily from Kyiv and from the Ukrainian government. But the indications are they've made a, a lot of progress from their perspective, surprisingly so for many people. And what you were saying about Russians withdrawing from some areas without fighting, well, strategic withdrawals are part of military warfare, and they're one of the tactics that you do use. But the wider issue is that if you're looking at the broad spectrum of what is it, well, we're heading towards, what, seven months of war, uh, then this is a turnaround over the last month or so compared with much of the middle of the period. If you go right back to the start, what basically Putin wanted to do was to change the Kiev government without a full-scale invasion of the country, but consolidate the Russian control of the eastern part down through to Crimea. That was the aim. It went wrong within a matter of just a few hours when the first attempt to get troops into Kiev at very short notice through a surprise uh, airdrop on a, a, an air drove outside the city failed and in fact the ukraines were in somewhere got wind of it and they actually had a special forces brigade ready to prevent that from that moment the war went quite badly for putin and he was never successful in his achieving his aims he moved really to a sort of second level of trying to consolidate the crimea and expand the train the degree of control in the east right through from from the, really right across the Donbass region, but right up to Kharkiv, which is, after all, Ukraine's second city, and up in the north over towards Kyiv. And so they never took control of that city, uh, but they did take control of a lot of territory. And things were almost in a kind of rather dangerous, violent stalemate from about three weeks into the war, right through until very recently. But by and large, uh, the Russians are doing nothing like as well as they'd hoped uh, but nothing like as badly as it could have been. They did withdraw from a lot of territory fairly close to Kiev, and that was an early strategic uh, withdrawal, and they seemed to consolidate then. But they had a number of problems. I mean, obviously, their own armed forces have been far weaker in terms of training and morale than expected. A lot of the equipment hasn't worked as well as they expected. And on the Ukrainian side, a very strong level of morale, I think partly due to Zelensky's personality, but also increasingly more and more support from NATO, particularly the United States, and to some extent Britain and some of the Eastern European countries. And what that means essentially is this is a full-scale proxy war. Yes, the Ukrainians are, are very much at the sharp end of it, but so much of the equipment that they're getting, particularly very modern equipment, is making the real difference. So for the moment at least, they've made quite considerable progress. People who are sort of professionally in this field, I would not claim to be that in any way, do believe that this does not mean that in some way the war is, quote, being won. I certainly go along with that, and I think it's actually becoming, curiously, it's the reason we can discuss a very dangerous situation. But I know there's a comment from Ratwood earlier on that showed online, which said she just arrived back at O'Keefe, the sun was shining, the houses were being rebuilt, and even the next guest can't sell things. So I think one has to remember that in a sense, in that in many ways for the Ukrainians, for much of Ukraine, this has actually been very good news. But, and it's a huge but, this war is not over, it's, not a, lo it's a long way from being over, and much of the basically possibility of ending it through negotiations uh, it's going to be down to attitudes of countries such as the United States and Britain. We can explore that if you like, but I think that's a dominant thing which we have to remember at this stage. 
What I'm wondering about is in terms of the Russian army, because they haven't done mass mobilization. So, I mean, they called this obviously a a, um, a military operation rather than a war. So they haven't done their mass mobilization. They sent obviously large numbers of young working class Russians to die, um, often extremely unpleasant deaths, it should be said. Um, but what I'm wondering about is given Ukraine has on its side, obviously... You, you you have higher morale because you're a country defending yourself from an invasion. So there's a kind of existential question there which faces you. So you have the active support of millions of people, an invader facing basically, you know, resistance from those you're invading. Your morale is already going to be significantly lower. Um, you know, unless you, you genuinely think you're fighting some great just war. But also, you know, they've got mass mobilization in a way the Russians don't. And they have this huge Western support. I just don't understand how it's... I mean, how, given the damage inflicted on the Russian army, I mean, we don't know exactly, but it looks like it's very, very substantial. Is it possible for Russia to be able to do a successful fight back unless they do a general mobilization? And is a general mobilization politically possible in Russia? I think a general mobilization is possible, but it would be very difficult to achieve anything substantial. Um, obviously, from the start, Putin's people have stuck very closely to this special military operation and not a war. Even from the start, it's very clear that it was a full-scale war. And incidentally, although the Russian infantry, by and large, are poorly trained, low morale and the rest, and it's also true that many of the troops put in right at the start were more sort of suited to policing than sort of pure fighting. Also at the start, many of the troops that went in right in the beginning were actually elite troops, and they too found it very difficult. So the Ukraine army, I think, performed way greater than expectations than the Russians ever, well, at least the Putin people ever expected. One rather suspects that many Russian uh, soldiers, experienced ones and senior ones, did not expect it to be so easy. But if we're looking ahead now, I think one has to bear in mind that the help that Ukraine has had from the West has been really far larger than people realize and far more persistent. Um, and yes, the high mile systems, these very accurate longer range multiple launch rocket systems have been particularly effective, but they've had sort of almost 24 seven uh, minute by minute intelligence feeding through from the huge American worldwide capability, which has given them an extraordinary range of information about what the Russians are doing. One suspects the Ukrainian military intelligence may know what some of the Russian units are doing before they even know being told themselves. And at that level, there's a lot more equipment going through uh, and even more to come. But the problem is, I mean, we discussed this last time a few weeks ago. What we're in now is a violent stalemate because although it looks, people are talking about, you know, Ukraine is going to be victorious and the Russians will have to withdraw. Well, I think that is highly unlikely. Um, because in a sense, there's no chance of Ukraine being defeated now, uh, as far as one can see, because if it really was facing huge difficulties, NATO would simply ump the ante. ante. But on the other hand, uh, Russia itself, under somebody like Putin, always has the option of threatening, at least, to escalate to tactical nuclear use. And I mean, sometime, Owen, you and I need to talk in more detail about the reality of tactical nuclear war. It is far more worrying than many people realize, but we don't have time to go into it here. But the reality is that there is a risk of that. And there would be if the Russians were pulled, pushed really too far to the edge. 
um, because we simply don't understand Putin's psychology enough for this. That I think that's one thing that we really do have to bear in mind. There is a, a suspicion. I wouldn't put it higher than that, although personally, the information that seems to be seeping out from opinion in Washington and to some extent in London is that the Western alliance does not want negotiations at the present time, put bluntly. Now, why is that? I think you've got to see there is an element of thinking within NATO, within Washington in particular, um, that this war is turning out to be an extraordinary opportunity to cripple the Russian economy long term. Now, that seems a pretty drastic thing to say, but there's awkward evidence suggesting that. And because of that, I think we've got to factor that in. You know, if you're looking at sort of world strategy from uh, Russia, from uh, United States' point of view, then the really big enemy they fear is China. But they fear even more a kind of Russian-Chinese axis. And that, I think, is far more worrying, in a sense, behind the scenes than we realize. And of course, what that means is that if in some way Russia can be really tied down in Ukraine, and equipment, its morale, its people, and most crucially, its economy really weakened, then that really takes a very large piece out of this strategic jigsaw in America's favor. I don't want to overstate that, but I think, you know, when the full details of the thinking become available, maybe five, 10, even 15 years time, it'll look very different to now. Because the reality is, this is my personal view, I stated before, this is a conflict which can only finally be solved by negotiation. That's a very grim thing to say. You will always get labeled a PISA because obviously that means in some way you've got to negotiate with Putin. I suspect behind the scenes that there are plenty of very intelligent people in Kiev who know this, even in government, and even now will be prepared for some sort of negotiation, starting at least initially with some sort of ceasefire. But it does not seem to be that there is the push to do that. Because I think it's certainly the case that with the Russian the Russian problems recently, the Ukraine advance that you were talking about at the start, over the next two months, really sort of October through to the end of November, is the opportunity when it might be possible to start negotiations. Because once this war gets bogged down in winter, remember we haven't had this. This war started at the end of February within a month of the start of spring. But this is the whole of the winter ahead. And if in some way we don't get a settlement in that time, then I'm afraid the real, realistic thing is this war is going to go on for maybe two or three years, sapping really uh, at Russia's uh, economy to you know the, the success of many people in the West. Now, it's difficult to put this through, but that's a fear, I think, that sort of long-term analysts, people, particularly peace researchers, actually, people who really understand how wars can and come to an, come to an end. These sort of people, I think, get getting seriously worried about the situation we're moving into, precisely at the time when, as Rachel and others quite right really say, things are getting better in many parts of Ukraine. It seems, in a sense, I suppose, to be uh, something which doesn't gel, but I think it's part of the picture that we have to acknowledge. While, yes, we welcome the fact that more Ukrainians are actually going to live better lives uh, in the months to come. At least that's the way it seems. Um, Tapcan, well, <clears throat> just as of a, a nice little debate here like that. Uh, so he's disputing that most information comes from Kiev. They ask for media blackout. Most of it's coming from locals on the grounds and Russian uh, milli bloggers and Telegram channels instead. So just, yeah, what, what what's your thoughts on that? Because I know a lot of 
the basis as well that seems to be for a Russian retreat being genuine seems to be coming from pro- Russian pro-war kind of telegrammers. Yes, actually, Tad makes a very good point, and, and I, I do actually agree with him because I think I said at the start, if not, I should have done, that in this sort of situation, it's actually very difficult to analyse what is really going on because almost anything that is coming through from any kind of official source, Russian or Ukraine, is designed to have particular effects. And they may be, put it mildly, rather loosely connected with what's happening on the ground. Where Tad, I think, is is really, the point he raises is very interesting because there is quite a lot of information coming out that the real ultra-nationalist Russian uh, military or military-associated people, people who really take the view that this is the war that Russia might win, must win, uh, there's a lot of criticism actually directed at Putin and the people around him, that in fact they're they're facing the possibility to defeat some of these people, say. And essentially, the, it may even be that Putin himself and his position may become very difficult, not from the sort of left or progressives, but from the really far right. Now, we don't know because of that why it is that such people who are originally hugely support Putin are actually still getting on telegram and allowed to spread the word around uh, mm-hmm. and that I think is a bit of an anomaly one which one would love to have the answer to that question but no he is right that that's a very important element that overall you know any kind of analysis that anybody like me does is based very much on the veracity of the information and the trouble is that when you've been following particular lines over a fairly long time you learn ones which can be trusted and ones which can't be trusted. So that's why I think you have to have this one point is so much of it could be false information. Uh, but allowing for that, I think it is still the case. The Ukrainians have made unexpected progress and the Russians are in bigger trouble than they were a month ago. Just uh, we'll talk about, as you say, we'll talk at length another time about tactical nuclear weapons. But, yeah. you know, interesting, actually enough, when I was watching the parliamentary debate, um, on the energy bill package the other day, and then a sudden a sudden murmurings and something kind of panicky passing of notes amongst MPs. I actually, I actually feared because I thought if the, I did think maybe the Queen's dead to be honest, but I thought maybe they suspend the chamber. But I actually thought to myself, what if Russia's used tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine? That was one of the things that went through my head. So what I wanted to ask really is, what do you think the chances are of Russia if it genuinely thinks to itself it faces defeat in Ukraine? And, you know, the, I don't think there's any example of a Russia, of sorry, of a nuclear power facing a conventional military defeat. Obviously, the US did in, say, Vietnam, say, Afghanistan. But it's not the same as you invade a country and you're just, like, pushed out. That I mean, China and Vietnam had a land, I know, had a border war in the late 70s. But this seems to be quite unique, especially it's one ruled by an autocrat. So I suppose, what you know, if he loses, he faces potentially being overthrown, that the whole house of cards could just come toppling down. So do you think if he thinks he's going to lose, he could use tactical nuclear weapons? And what does that mean? Because I think a lot of people just think nuclear weapons, big mushroom cloud wiping out cities. And I mean, yeah, what is it? How likely is it? And do you think, do you think, what would it mean in practice? Well, I think the thing we have to remember is that NATO itself for many years and still now has a policy of first use of tactical nuclear weapons. And it was deep in NATO's strategy. We know a lot about it, far more than people realize, which is some stage we need to talk about it because it's something that's really much more in the public eye. But if that was true and technically is still, still true for Britain, uh, for NATO, 
and it's also true for Britain, of course, then one should expect it to be true for Russia. Um, NATO is prepared to use low-yield tactical nuclear weapons in demonstration shots once they seem to be at the receiving end of a conventional war which they might lose. Now, turn the whole thing around, and you remember that right at the start of this conflict, um, the first four days were crucial. You know, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, the invasion started on the on the Thursday. By Sunday morning, it was clearly going badly for the Russians. And that is when Putin, uh, almost with palpable anger, made this speech in which he said that NATO keep out or else this is going to wreak the worst havoc you can imagine. In other words, I can't remember the exact language, even the translation, or is basically saying we are prepared to go to the next step. Does that mean they would do? Well, put it this way. If we get to the point where Russia is really having to withdraw from large areas of territory and appears to be facing at least a tactical defeat, that's when life does become dangerous. And that is where you really need some very skilled diplomacy to be able to work. And the point is, it doesn't mean um, that uh, Putin would suddenly order a single demonstration shot. But I think there's a real risk that he could threaten it uh, and say, threaten if you don't do so-and-so, then don't be surprised if this happens. And that is when I think it gets very tricky. We're not there. We're not there yet. But this is why I think when we see these very big gains being made and welcoming them, yes, that's great. But this is not, if I can use that awful phrase, this is not a typical war. We're in, to some extent, unknown territory. And that is where, you know, you really have to have a premium on wisdom. Uh, and you must avoid the idea that any kind of concession means that you are sort of an appeaser, because it's not that kind of world anymore. And if you want that kind of world, you can start off by getting rid of all nuclear weapons. And that will mean remove one of the big problems. But we're not there now, and we're not going to be there for some time, I'm afraid. So meanwhile, we have to try and chart a way through, recognizing that while what has been happening is in many ways welcome, also raises this very, very tricky thing about the possibility of a sudden crisis which would have to be faced when you have an awful lot of hawks who want to get the most out of this war for rather different aims. Paul, thank you so much for giving us an update. Obviously, given uh, the current news cycle in Britain, I think it's important that we do talk about clearly what remains the biggest conflict in Europe since World War II, um, which obviously deserves to be discussed and it's good to put it in a, in, in a proper context because i think you know often the dangers you, you see a big counteroffensive like this and then all of a sudden think the whole tide has turned and maybe the war could end suddenly you know within a matter of weeks and clearly that's not unfortunately how wars tend to work and it's certainly not how this war as you explain is going to work either um so it's great to have your incisive thoughts and we do need to oh, talk about oh, and one quick thing it is yes. always possible um that the, in fact the russian war morale may collapse quite suddenly and in fact, it may be that Putin might even be deposed. That's possible. Really? really? It's, it's possible because we're very, it's very unclear just how strong the cohesion of the Russian army right across Ukraine is at present. So don't rule that out that that could happen. Mm. I have to say that it is very unlikely. And what we've been going through the last couple of minutes, I'm afraid, is more likely. But one can always live in hope. And at this time, a little bit of hope goes a long way. I suppose that's what, I mean, it's a very different conflict, obviously, but that's what happened arguably with germany in 1918 where you suddenly have which is why the stab in the math back myth was then propagated obviously by the nazi late but it was the idea you know they they still had this intact army and the rest of it but morale and so on all collapsed and obviously you had a revolution in germany um 
yeah, fascinating stuff. So it is still uncertain and, and maybe that will yeah. be how the war ends. Great. Well, Paul, as ever, honestly, such an honour to have you. Really appreciate your thoughts and your wisdom. So thank you so, so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Take care. Speak to you soon. Um, great stuff as ever from Paul. Um, wow, what, what a show. We've covered, covered a lot as ever. Um, and I'm glad. I'm really glad that we we did talk about the institution of the monarchy. Um, again, I think, you know, it's those who say it's not the right time never seem to kind of a lot of time for it to happen. Uh, the British media does not generally give significant space for republicanism. It is also true, I should say, that people like myself who are republicans don't make it, have never made it a kind of big defining issue because there's just so many other issues which are often more bread and butter to talk about. Um, so that is also, you know, the reason. And, you know, there hasn't, the, the republican movement in this country doesn't have strong kind of social roots. Um I think it'll be interesting to see what happens, though, under King Charles III, which we have to get used to. All these things change, like obviously a notes and cash. People use less cash than before, obviously. But things like Queen's Council, QC, is now King's Council, KC. Um, these things will change. But it'll be interesting to see, obviously, given King Charles does not have the popularity of the Queen at all. The Queen did have... I don't think anyone really dislikes the Queen. The, the, King Charles is more polarising um, and more interventionist politically. Um and obviously he doesn't have the benefit of having been around for a very long time. Um, the wartime aura of the monarchy, it should be said actually at the beginning of the war, the monarchy was not particularly popular in Britain. They obviously had the crisis, they had an abdication. Um, but it was really during the war when the monarchy refused to leave that actually they they gained more public support and enthusiasm than, than they had before. And that I think that wartime kind of image lasted a very long time obviously amongst the oldest generations but including those who grew up not you know in the decades after the war when the war still loomed large so it will it will be interesting but i think it's structural i think michael's right why are younger people turning away from the monarchy i think there's lots of basic social reasons i think young younger people um don't feel you know it's a general product of not having a sense of a vested interest in a society which has treated younger people very badly for the last 20 years in particular, 15 years. Um, but we will see. And we will keep monitoring. We will keep monitoring the situation. That's what we'll do. Um, as I said, we will be going to Labour Party Conference and Conservative Party Conference. Thanks to you supporting us on patreon.com forward slash Jones 84 We pay union wages to the, the geniuses behind the videos, which is not me, <laughs> I should say. Um, it's going to be traumatic going to both conferences for different reasons. But... Um, We've got to do it, so I might as well. If it's in my head, it's like, it's like I don't know, like going to the dentist as a kid. That's how I'm thinking about it. But we'll try and make the videos fun. You should check out our Conservative Party video from last year if you haven't, because um, you'll see what I mean. All the way through, I have to kind of be all happy and bouncy, you know. And in my head, I'm like, I'm dying inside. Um, yeah, anyway, we'll, we will do those, and we will interrogate um, Labour politicians and Conservative politicians and delegates and all the rest of it about everything <laughs> uh but do on patreon.com for slash i will put a um a post up and get suggested questions you want us to put to those to those politicians and others um i will be very interested to hear from that from you on that um just to go through quickly super chat sorry um yeah uh thanks to attila desix thanks to tad Cantwell as ever thanks to ih who's from tokyo first time watching fsm the dog uh Carl Hamilton, David Browater, 
uh, as ever. Um, Rachel Atwood, hello. Attila Desix, I. Um, uh, have I missed? Oh, someone says Attila Desix, President Boris, question mark. Yeah, this comes up a lot in terms of opposing the monarchy. Um, and um, the thing is about that is it's, it's such a bad argument against democracy, which is what it is, by the way. Um, when people go, or oh, President Blair, people elect President Blair. It, I mean, if you genuinely think that over half the population would vote for Tony Blair, then why you wouldn't? I don't think that would happen at all. I mean, Tony Blair is toxic in this country. He's got very low approval ratings. He's got very high negative ratings. He wouldn't be elected president. But if there was that level of enthusiasm for a politician where over half the population wanted them to be president, then kind of trying to stop that from happening because you think you'd lose a vote is because only a minority would dissent. I mean, you know, it's like, an argument against democracy shouldn't be, I might be on the losing side. I mean, that it sucks. Look, I've, a lot of us have been on the losing side for a long time. It is pretty tedious. It's not an argument against democracy, that though, is it? Like, I might lose. More people might support something which I don't like than me. But also, the whole point of a president is um, they would be a constitutional rule, like the, the Irish president. The Irish president isn't some big dictator. <laughs> you probably don't know who the Irish president is, do you? Um, you know, and he's very well respected and admired in, in Ireland, but also the Irish presidency costs about 1% of the monarchy. So it's cheaper. Yeah, the other argument is always tourism. Um, a few years ago, I, I'm, I'd be surprised if this has changed much, but certainly it was true a few years ago that the top 20 tourist attractions in Britain, only one royal property made it. Um, and that was Windsor Castle at number 17. It was beaten by Windsor Legoland, which came in at number seven. I, I also think it just shows a real lack of, uh, a real lack of kind of, um, well, patriotism, if you want to go there. Uh, a real lack of faith in your own country, if you think the only reason people want to visit is you don't elect your head of state. <laughs> you must think British culture is rubbish if you think that's why people are turning up. Yeah, I mean, anyway, it's just two arguments against it, isn't it? Um, Rachel Atwood, oh, oh, great, by the way, I should have mentioned, gone back to Kiev after six months. Sun is shining, buildings rebuilt, and I don't have COVID. Not even your next guest can sell me. Lovely. Well, I hope you're doing well in Kiev. I'm glad you're tuning in from there, and I hope all is well in Kiev. Uh, thank you to Erin is queerly autistic. Thank you to Veiled Rose. Thank you to US who said, oh, he's talking about the royal family is never going to accept someone who is, is a black American. Uh, Stephen Calder, who's King Charles III's position on, what is his position on millions of his subjects being thrown into poverty, unable to pay basic bills? So, I mean, it's a good question just in terms of the inequality of the system, which you have a very rich head of state, which is the symbol of the nation, whilst huge numbers of people are suffering. Um, arguably, though, to be consistent with what I said, he shouldn't have a position on anything because that's how, you know, supposed to be the basis of the monarchy. But it is certainly valid to point out huge wealth whilst huge numbers of people obviously are struggling. Um, and, yeah, that's those are all the people I just... Thank you. I hope I haven't missed anyone. I really hope I haven't. Um, someone says here, yet again, Jones is spouting off at the wrong time. Well, why are you listening to me then? What? The things that annoy me generally, I mean, maybe won't go too far because I do occasionally watch things that annoy me, I have to say. But for research purposes, you don't like you don't have to watch things you don't like. You don't you don't have to be here. You could just just not 
just not watch things that offend you. And people that, you know, the people who, you know, go, well, you say, oh, you say the same thing about people, right? I just object to people using their platforms to whip up bigotry against minorities because I think it's harmful. And I think it legitimizes discrimination and people being abused in the streets. That's the kind of speech I object to. You just object to me talking about whether or not we should elect a head of state, which I'm sorry to say is a legitimate uh, political discussion. And you might go, well, it's not the right time to talk about it. But again, if we have a process in which the head of state unelected, a new unelected figure assumes that position, not not something obviously I support and that that that's really the point. In a democracy, surely we can discuss that because what you're saying is I should wait until he's obviously in office for a while before I can debate it when, as you know, attention will drift away from the monarchy. You know, I haven't shown any disrespect for the Queen. I have no disrespect for the Queen at all. Um, you know, I, if I was to think of the Queen in my head, I don't think anything negative or bad about the Queen. Um, I, I do respect that millions of people are grieving and are sad, um, not just here, but around the world. But you've also just got to accept a lot of people don't support the monarchy, I'm afraid, and they don't want it to exist, and they want to, they want to choose the head of state. Um, they think having a very privileged, uh, this you know, family um, as a symbol of the nation is the biggest legitimizer of inequality you could possibly just conjure up. And you might not like that opinion, and I accept that. There's lots of opinions I don't like, but equally. Um, you just have to accept that people just don't agree with you all the time. And then if you don't like it, just don't watch it or listen to it. Dave Ross makes an interesting point there. I worry about campaigning for republicanism <clears throat> while Tories are empowered due to the distribution of power. Yeah, really good point. That's why I think if we're going to talk about abolishing the monarchy, which I think is a very long-term aim for the polling reasons we've discussed, though younger people obviously are far more well-disposed to getting rid of the institution, it would have to be part of a new constitutional settlement where you'd have to have a written constitution and you would have to, in that, have checks on balance of power and all the rest of it. I think you'd actually, you know, proportional representation would have to be in the mix there, to be honest. Um, obviously, other countries, which are, I would say, far more democratic than ours, don't have a monarchy. And they, um, other countries that are democratic do have a monarchy. I mean, Nordic countries have monarchies and you wouldn't look at them and go, oh, they're undemocratic or, I mean, they're far more equal than Britain. So, you know, it's not an automatic thing, is it? But I think, you know, I, I take your point. Um, but the whole point of a, of a republic is you'd have a president assuming the the role, uh, the roles that the monarchy has, um, but you would elect them. Um, so, you you know, have a different president and a different prime minister. Um, so that would be a check on, on the power of the prime minister. And that's how it works in other countries. But yeah, it's a very interesting point anyway. All right. Um, thank you, everyone. That's been a long show, but we had a lot to talk about. Do press like before you go. It takes one second. Just helps the algorithm. More people will watch and listen. Uh, press subscribe. Do support us on Patreon.com. The only, the only reason we can do all this stuff is because of you. You think you think I'm doing this? I don't think so. Um, and also, uh, yeah, podcast. Yeah, obviously, listen to all the podcast. Maybe you are listening to me on the podcast now. Maybe you're on the treadmill running frantically. Um kind of irritated by my ramblings to i'll just stop speaking now let's just let's just end the show thank you everybody we'll be back next sunday i'll make that happen even though i won't be here because i'm writing my book um and we've got so we've got we had some interviews lined up but we had to delay them because <laughs> of events but anyway it's been a real pleasure thank you everybody as ever and i will see you very soon <laughs>